In the previous episode, why do some people get autoimmune diseases and others don't? Why is it that some people are sneezing all the time and other signs of allergy and others don't? And we have this tendency to want to blame genetics. And of course, genetics are involved, right? We're programmed in a certain way. But the truth of the matter is genetics is actually less than 10%. And some researchers say less than 5% of how our health expresses itself. Welcome to Reinvent Healthcare, a podcast for health and wellness practitioners passionately committed to transforming our current broken disease-focused system. Your host, Dr. Rita Marie Los Calzo, is devoted to helping you get results with complex health challenges like autoimmune, hormonal imbalances, and chronic health challenges caused by nutritional and lifestyle-induced imbalances. Here's your host, Dr. Rita Marie. Welcome back to Reinvent Healthcare, the podcast for health and wellness practitioners who are passionate about making a difference. I'm super excited for today's episode where I invited a colleague of mine who has written a book that I refer to all the time, who does a program that I refer people to all the time. It's Dr. Christy Sutton. If you're a health practitioner who really wants to help people to get well, not to just cover up symptoms, not to just apply protocols, whether nutritional or pharmaceutical, we are doing a live event that's just right for you. It's called Functional Nutrigenomics in Clinical Practice. And it's all about how you can learn the genetic testing you can do with people to help you to personalize their diet and lifestyle plans. And when you put that together with your typical really great functional history and lab testing, you're gonna have all you need. So join us for an online virtual event that you can attend from anywhere. It's June 2nd to 4th, 2023. And you can get there by going to nesliveconference.com. That's nesliveconference.com. And we'll also put the link on the show notes page. She's the author of the book, Genetic Testing, Defining Your Path to a Personalized Health Plan. And she has an amazing report that analyzes SNPs or charts out SNPs that corresponds to the book. And it's called the Genetic Detoxification Report. I can't tell you how many people I have referred to go get this book and do the reports. And I use it with my clients. I use it in our groups. And I teach it in my practitioner trainings. So let me tell you just a brief about Dr. Christie. You could read more about her on the show notes page. So like many of us who have gone into alternative health paths, Dr. Christie went down that path because of her own health and her own problems and her own autoimmune conditions. And she was really digging to try to understand what was going on for her own health. And that led her to chiropractic school. And then she learned how to diagnose root causes. That's what we're really here for, right? To help people and find out root causes. So that's when she started studying genetics and wrote the book, Genetic Testing, Defining Your Path to a Personalized Health Plan, and then created the Genetic Detoxification Report. I first found this report when I was going to do a three-day live event back in 2018, and we were focused on teaching practitioners about genetic testing and how that can be used in practice. So I was looking for every book I could find, and this was 
was a gem. I remember reading it on my Kindle on the way back from a trip and then I couldn't wait to get back into the office so I could run the report and the rest is history. Thank you so much, first of all, for being here. I know our schedules are busy and it was hard to find a time. So just tell us a little bit more about that. What prompted you to create this report? Because that's a lot of work. I've always wanted to do that, but it seems like way more work than I'm willing to do. Yeah. Yeah. Like most things, it is more work than you kind of planned on it being. And I didn't really expect it to be as much work as it was, but it was one of those things where once I kind of got started, there was a point of no return and I just had to power through and I really needed to kind of finish the book. And the book was where I really just invested a lot of time and energy into trying to collect as much information as possible about these different genes and have it be as well researched, but really true to my primary focus, which is fixing things naturally and giving people options rather than just giving them a diagnosis with nothing they can do about it. So I wasn't really pleased with what was available out there at the market, on the market at the time as far as genes. And so I just kind of dug in and started doing research and that kind of evolved into the book, Genetic Testing, Finding Your Path to a Personalized Health Plan. And I I realized pretty early on that I was going to need a genetic report to go along with it because the book itself really isn't as valuable as it could and should be if people didn't know what their genes were. So then that's where I actually started paying the front desk girl to just go through like 23andMe and kind of like create people's personalized genetic reports for patients. And then I realized very quickly that that was not going to work. It was just too time consuming. And so that's where I finally kind of figured out like, like everything you figure it out because you have to, not because you want to, how to create the report. And then I got to the point where I decided I really need to add more genes to this report, but I don't really have it in me to go back and like rewrite the whole book and add those new genes. So mm-hmm. that's where I added kind of the second part where there's additional genes that I don't have in the book that I really kind of I talk about briefly in the report. So Great. that's kind of where it's evolved today. Yeah. And there's like so many. And how do you decide which ones you're going to put in the book? I like the way you organize the book in terms of the first part is phase one detoxification. The second part is not just phase two, but you have it broken down by methylation, acetylation, etc. And then you have other things that are, in my opinion, key factors in when we're trying to help people to maximize the potential of their genes that they're there, the inflammatory things, all the gluten-type genes, the cancer risk genes, the cardiovascular risk genes. And what I really love is the nutrients, right? So people go, Mm -hmm. why do I need to take this nutrient? I eat plenty of food with that in it. And you can go, well, your genetics are such that. So your book has been really valuable to me and valuable to my students and our nutritional endocrinology practitioner training, but also to all of the people who we coach as clients and patients. So how do you go about figuring out which of those genes you're going to do? Because I realized that the first pass, you didn't have blood sugar. 
balancing genes, or maybe some of them were mixed in with the inflammation. And you don't really have a section on digestive genes. So tell me more about like what that yeah. process was like. Yeah, well, there, it's hard, right? Because so many genes can really go in so many different categories, right? Yeah, so right. like there's there's not technically a digestive part, but there's there's an inflammation part, and then there's celiac gluten genes. And it's hard because you're like, really, this belongs in five different categories. Yeah. But at some point in time, you kind of have to categorize things. And then ultimately, really, more education has to follow that to kind of help people understand what how to interpret this and really how to extract the extra value. And the truth is that there's some genes that I have since writing the book have kind of lost interest for the time being in them because I just don't see them as clinically significant as others. And then there's other ones that when I wrote the book, I don't think I really truly appreciated their clinical significance, but in the process of writing the book and then working with looking at patients genetic reports and learning about their history and seeing their symptoms and looking at their labs I've realized this is much more significant than I realized and so it's kind of changed the way that I look at things it's also given me the tool to look at things because if you don't measure something then you can't really extract value from it and so it's one of those things where you really have to just constantly be looking at people's genes to be able to extract value and clinical significance. And I'm sure there's things that you have seen that I haven't, not because they're not there. It's just you look at things through a little different window and perspective than I do, just like every doctor does. That's kind of part of the art and science of it. Right. Right. And we, and we see different patient populations as well. So I may right. see, I see a lot more blood sugar imbalance because I started out early on teaching people about how to balance their blood sugar and created an insulin resistance training program for practitioners. So I'm, I'm seeing things through that filter. Like, is there an underlying blood sugar imbalance there? And mm -hmm. so I went dig, dig, dig into the blood sugar genes and came up with these charts. And I think I shared some of the charts I came up with, but I basically love the layout of your book. So I took and I made a chart based on summarizing the different aspects and then what can people do? Because that's always the thing. Okay, I'm doomed to failure. I'm going to die of Parkinson's or whatever. What can they do? And then we have columns based on a lot of the information in your book and then of course other things that I've looked into that we created these charts that are absolutely incredibly helpful for me and for my patients, clients and students to go through. So I so appreciate the work you put into doing this. The genes that are in there are so, they're so basic and telling, right? So mm -hmm. something, when you look at a report, like there's a lot of reports out there, I won't name the names of them, but there's one report that you printed and it's 50 pages of snip charts. And you're like, yeah. okay, which of these are relevant? Which of these are not relevant? Which of these have science behind it? Which of these clinically are going to make a difference? Whereas everything in your report is based on what's in the book. And, and what's in the book is based on what you have researched and found clinically. Right. Yeah, exactly. And, and like I said, since writing it, I've kind of narrowed down and 
extracted some that I don't feel are as important and extracted others that I feel like are more important and added more and ultimately I kind of want to create a program to help educate people on that so they can kind of learn from what I've learned from just kind of looking at this stuff and, and maybe make it even easier. My my goal was to make it easier than it was, but I think maybe I can even make it easier now. At the time when I wrote it, there was, and there still are just a lot of people saying a lot of things, and when it actually came down to kind of looking at the research, it didn't always line up with what people were saying, mm. and so I just wanted to kind of give people the information and then like my perspective on it and then they can kind of go from there. So I'd love to hear from you, which are some of the genes that you found to not be as clinically relevant as maybe you originally thought? Oh, that's a good question. Sometimes I'll look at like some of the cholesterol genes or I think in every section I can kind of find a couple where I'm like, yeah, I don't think so. Like the Alzheimer's section, I wish I had fewer genes in that section. I wish I kind of just had like the APOE4, APOE2, and maybe just IDE as the main ones. Because I feel like sometimes people, they look at the report and they kind of freak out because yeah. there's this misperception where they think like, oh, I have a lot of reds. And it's like, well some of these yellows are actually more significant than some of these reds and it, that's where the value of kind of really knowing how to interpret it is important. Yeah. I don't like how with the Alzheimer's section people will kind of look at it and they'll they'll freak out because they see reds or yellows on ones that I have since kind of decided are not that important yeah. and so at some point in time I might go in and clean that up a little bit. I find that with the Alzheimer's section too. I'll be like, these I know. So I just off the top of my head as I'm talking to somebody, I'm explaining them like, oh, I don't see, let's see what that one means. And then I pull out the book and look it up. And in some cases it's like, eh, this one's not so important to you. This one is, right? So I love that. Yeah. And then I also, I think it's really important whenever you're kind of talking to a patient and I've kind of figured this out a little bit and I'm still working on it but to not like overwhelm them with everything and kind of really as a clinician trying to kind of figure out what is the most important for them in their situation and then kind of give them like a couple key takeaways yeah. and that's where I think you know refining down what we look at and maybe knowing like just a ton about a few key genes is a better way of looking at it than really like digging into all of them. Not just as a clinician, but I think as a patient can be overwhelming. And I did this early on, I would kind of talk about a lot of different things and it was like too much. And then they kind of felt like, well, it's just there's a lot of information here and they, they kind of shut down and it was like there was too much supplements being recommended, too much lifestyle changes. And so now I try to kind of focus on like the key couple takeaways and then kind of build on that with time. Yeah. And you can do that because you have a good history on people, right? So you kind of right. base on your history of heart disease 
Alzheimer's, whatever, and you have this genetic tendency and looking at your diet, you're leading yourself down that pathway. Let's focus on that first. Is that kind of what you mean? Yeah. So you look at the whole picture, just that same thing you're doing. You're just kind of looking at the whole picture. It's just like if somebody has a gene that I'm worried about them having blood sugar issues, but then their labs are perfect, (laughs) we're not going to focus on that. It's something worth talking to them about as far as like, hey, you have this genetic predisposition to maybe having a blood sugar problem, but you're you don't have any symptoms, your hemoglobin A1C is perfect, your fasting blood sugar is perfect, your C-peptide, whatever, it's perfect. Maybe we can not spend as much time on this and really kind of figure out your bang for your buck because it's not just our genes, so much of it is our environment. Or like I'll see somebody that has a bunch of genes that worry about high blood pressure And then it's like, well, your blood pressure is really pretty good. It's actually kind of perfect. So I'll just maybe mention you have a potential genetic predisposition as you get older based on such and such, but your blood pressure is really good. So we're not really going to worry about it. But like everybody else, you got to keep a close eye on it. Keep an eye on it. And if it does end up being a problem, then based on your genes, we can really create a personalized plan to hopefully lower yours naturally. And then if you do have like resistant hypertension that you can't seem to get down naturally because there are a couple of genes that can do that then maybe we can have a better idea as to if you need like absolutely need a pharmaceutical what maybe will be best based on the genetic report so yeah yeah it's awesome so i have what i call and we did a previous episode on i called them the five most motivating genes the genes that if i find them in people it motivates them into behaviors that I probably would have recommended anyway, but they're more likely to pay attention because I show them their genes. And one of those was APOE. And I just wanted to talk a bit about APOE. And there's a lot of confusion about that. There's a whole book on the APOE4. And so there's APOE4 and the 4-4. If you could just explain to, so our audience is health practitioners, so you can do it at a higher level or a deeper level, so to speak, than what you would do for the average person. But if you can just go through that APOE and how you're looking at it. Yeah, so I write about that a little bit in the book and then it's in the genetic report One thing you have to understand is that whenever somebody is like yellow or red on the APOE4 one, then that basically means in another way, like they're either a 3-4 or a 4-4 error. Or if by some chance they have inherited an APOE2, they might be a 2-2 or 2-3 or a 4-2. So, but what I mean by that is that there's basically, there's the APOE gene which everybody has an APOE gene, which is important for kind of transporting cholesterol around your body. And then there's three different forms that it can take, three different isoforms. And it can be either APOE3, APOE4, or APOE2. And the the most common genotype is where you inherit APOE3 from both of your parents. And that is pretty neutral as far as like Alzheimer's goes because the APOE4 gene is the Alzheimer's, late onset Alzheimer's disease gene, meaning late onset being symptoms start after 
at or after 65, um, which really, if you develop symptoms at or after 65, then they really started decades before, and that's really the value of genetic testing early, so you can get started before the permanent damage is there at really preventing Alzheimer's disease and neurodegenerative issues. So you have the ApoE4 type genotype, which is the Alzheimer's gene. And so if you inherit one of those and then an ApoE3 from your other parent, then you're a 4-3, which slightly increases your risk for Alzheimer's disease. And then if you have a 4-4, meaning you inherited that Alzheimer's gene from both of your parents, then you're at a much more significant, that's a really pretty significant genotype for Alzheimer's disease. And then the other option is the ABOE2, which is actually protective against Alzheimer's disease, but it's a pretty rare gene. It's the most recent gene as far as evolution goes, and it's just not very common although it does exist and you see it every once in a while. So it gets a little bit complicated when you see somebody that's like inherited a four from one parent and then a two from the other because it's like on one hand they have this ApoE4 that's going to increase their risk for Alzheimer's disease and then on the other hand they inherited this ApoE2 which is like going to protect them. So the research is a little bit unclear about that. The way that I kind of approach it and look at it is anybody that inherits an Alzheimer's disease gene, they really need to be educated about it. And I love that's one of your top five most motivational, and I'd love to hear the other ones at some point in time. But they need to be educated. And this is kind of a hairy situation. If I'm ever going to get in trouble, this is where I tend to get in trouble. And I don't think it's because like I'm presenting it in a bad way to people. It's, I think more so it's just like some people, they've really been traumatized by watching the process of losing somebody that they love to Alzheimer's disease. And so they kind of feel like it's kind of like a PTSD trigger for them. And so that's where like you really have to do your like research and like really think about how you're going to handle this with people and, and be a really well-trained clinician. And that's where, like, anytime I find somebody that has this gene, I always pull out my book and I go to the page that it's steps you can take to prevent Alzheimer's disease. And I just walk through all of those steps with them. And there's more that I haven't added them to the book, but there's more steps that I talk to people about. But that's a really good resource because you really have to have a plan and oftentimes that'll be kind of all that I might not really talk about that many other genes that day with that person because that's like a pretty big thing to kind of digest and you really have to kind of present it in a way that like here's the problem here's the solution and this is what you're going to do about it now I also always tell the story especially if somebody inherited like one ApoE4 like there are four three I always tell the story about my grandmother who has the 3-4 genotype and she is in her 90s about 94 and she's very lucid like her brain seems to be working pretty well just to kind of help people understand this isn't a destiny having said that she's lost a couple siblings to Alzheimer's disease now I haven't seen her siblings genotypes so they could easily have been 4-4s I just don't know all I know is my grandma's a 3-4 she's in her 90s and she's lucid 
So it's very much about finding this type of information early and then helping people know what to do with it. And that's probably one of the most powerful conversations you can have with somebody. If you really approach it in the right way, you can really make one of the most meaningful impacts, I think, in their life and maybe even their loved ones. But it's a precarious situation. Yeah. And you really have to kind of know your audience and give them the information, but do it in a way that they'll hear you. Yeah. I failed a couple times at that, and I'm happy to tell you those stories if you would like. But yes, we would. I think it's helpful for clinicians to hear failure stories from other clinicians so we don't go down that path. So feel free, please. So I recently had a young girl come in. She's in her, well, first, first her sister came in, and then the mom brought the other daughter in, and we did genetic testing on them because... The young girl had her hereditary hemochromatosis that was causing her to not have menstrual cycles and she was having a lot of problems. She was like 17. Mm-hmm. And so we diagnosed that. And then her sister comes in because her sister has digestive problems. So we get genetic testing on her. And the mom isn't at that appointment when I go over the genes with her sister. And her sister is sitting there kind of, I have it all laying out on my chiropractic table. I print out the genetic report that I have, the genetic detoxification report, and the 23andMe report. And it's just sitting there, and I see the sister. She's just staring at the top of the 23andMe report that says slightly increased risk for Alzheimer's disease. And I'm like, okay, well, (laughs) I can tell this girl is staring at this, and I need to address this. It wasn't really my goal for the day, but I needed to address it to basically help her understand her risk and how there's something you can do about it. This young girl in her 20s. And uh, and it was one of those situations where they're like late and they already wanted to accomplish too much in the allotted amount of time anyways. And it was just a lot. And so I kind of briefly talk about them like you have this gene that's going to increase your risk for Alzheimer's slightly. I tell her a story about my grandma. And then I say, we don't really have time to, I tell you, this is not a destiny. There's something you can do about it. And it's really, I think, worth you coming in for another appointment next time so that we can really help you understand what you can do to protect yourself from this. We just don't have time today because like you're about to go back to college tomorrow and you're here because your digestive system. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. we need to like address that goal. So I talked to her about briefly and then long story short, her mom calls and is just livid that I told her daughter that she has the Alzheimer's gene and she's very distressed. And her daughter is like in her 20s, so she's an adult. And I've told a lot of people that they have the Alzheimer's gene and everybody takes it differently. This lady was very upset about it, although she didn't hear the conversation. And I think ultimately she was probably really mostly upset about the fact that she actually had just realized that she has the Alzheimer's gene and she gave it to her daughter because her mother was in the throes of a 
full-on Alzheimer's disease, that was very traumatic. And so I explained to her how I was really trying to kind of defuse the situation and not let her daughter get anxious about something and how I really do think it would be wise to have a conversation about what to do to protect it yourself from it and my grandma had this disease and or sorry had this gene and she doesn't have Alzheimer's disease and I told her all those things and she was just so pissed off at me but it's just one of those things where you just never know how somebody's going to handle the situation so if you're going to have a conversation with somebody then you really need to arm yourself with information and make sure that you have time to really adequately discuss it with them, it sounds like, too. Oh, definitely, definitely. And that's that's a hard situation, too, the whole making sure you have time when there's just a lot of other factors that come into play. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. So that's a lesson learned, guys, right? Just be really plan out if you have some genes that they're going to be disturbing for them to hear. But really, we focus a lot on talking about the epigenetic factors, right? What can you do from a diet lifestyle perspective to adequately protect yourself from Alzheimer's regardless? And I know one of my clients years ago, she got her report back, I guess she got it from 23andMe, and she knew she's a a neuroscience kind of person. So she knew how to read reports and all that. She was okay. I have a 4-4. My mom has Alzheimer's. My dad has Alzheimer's. I guess I'm doomed. And mm-hmm. I said, no, no, you're not. It's a tendency. They played it out. You told me about their lifestyle. You told me about how they eat. You told me about their toxic exposures. What we need to do is turn that around for you change the way you eat, change your supplementation, change your attitude and your stress levels and all the other blood sugar balance, all the other things that go into it. And she's okay now. She doesn't have signs of Alzheimer's. So that was exciting for her. And that's why I say it's a motivating gene because I may say to somebody, it's important to get your blood sugar in balance. It's important to avoid processed fats and saturated high levels of saturated fats. And they go, yeah, 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 yeah. But then when they see that it's tied to this risk of Alzheimer's, especially if they have a family member who they've seen suffer, then they go, okay, what do I have to do? I'm willing to do it. So mm-hmm. that's why the whole, and you can listen to that podcast episode. It should air a little bit before yours about the five most motivating genes that I found. And probably I'll change those over time, right? Yeah. As I find more, but it's really important. I know we're going to, I don't want to run out of time here, but I wanted to chat with you. I know you have a new book coming out on hemochromatosis and it's called The Iron Curse. And I'm particularly interested in hearing what you have to say about that. From a selfish perspective, my brother has hemochromatosis. He has the, the both genes. And I have one of those genes. And Probably I want to hear cool, a little bit. <laughs> not cool, but interesting. And <laughs> I know cool, that that's one of the f- <laughs> interesting. We always have to think about it that way. But the thing with hemochromatosis, it's one of the rare conditions that if you have the double genes, you're very, 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 very high percentage chance that it's going to happen that you have it and you need to do stuff. So tell us more about your journey with that and how you got interested in that. Oh, yeah, sure. After I wrote Genetic Testing, Defining Your Path to a Personalized Health Plan, I diagnosed, or actually maybe before that, I diagnosed my husband with hemochromatosis and he does have one of the genes. And my husband's not the best patient 
<laughs> he loves me dearly. He just doesn't listen to me. And that's um, very familiar, my dear. <laughs> <laughs> it's I think it's a common trend. <laughs> so basically I realized I was gonna really have to get a medical doctor to get this in his head and treat it because me encouraging him to donate blood and take supplements to kind of manage it was just a totally failed idea. And so we went through, we went to the gastroenterologist and I gave him the labs I had done, which were in addition to the labs that his primary care doctor had done that were already showing like the trend of high iron and it was hurting his liver. And then I did additional labs. And then so we would go to the gastroenterologist and they, I give him the information, I give him the genes, I give him the labs. I say, I think high iron's causing this problem. And then they kind of don't really, I think, take that to heart. And they run all their tests. They do the ultrasound and they do a ton of lab work and they misdiagnose him as having autoimmune hepatitis. And then eventually, months and months later, as his irons continue to go up and his liver enzymes continue to go up because high iron destroys the liver. And I'm continuing to do more labs to kind of watch this because I was really interested in the iron piece and they were not as interested in it. Eventually say, okay, well, I think the gastroenterologist thought, okay, polycythemia vera, that's your problem. And I'm going to send you to a hematologist. So, okay, so we go to the hematologist. Hematologist, give him the labs, give him the gene. He said, oh, yeah, hereditary hemochromatosis. This is easy. I'm like, okay, finally, thank you. <laughs> My husband was like, that's like the first doctor you've liked. I'm like, because they were smart. <laughs> and then, so they, they remove blood and his liver enzymes improve a fair amount and then pretty much everything's getting better except for his DHEA is still slightly high because that's one of the additional labs I ordered just because I'm trying to kind of make sure he's as healthy as possible. He's got a really high stress job so I think okay the DHEA might be high because of that but it seems to kind of be going up and down. I'm not sure what's going on here. It's not getting better and I thought everything was going to get better when the iron got corrected. And so we go to the endocrinologist and I give them the whole history, which I learned from this experience that my husband was not an excellent, um, he wasn't really great at giving his history. Like there's really an art to it. You got to give the right information. And then like the doctors were not really great about asking the right questions. So I realized I needed to just go to all the appointments and just give them all the information. So I give their endocrinologist the whole run up and the labs and the story. And at the end of it, I say, and I think he might have Cushing's. And she looks mm. at him and she says, he doesn't look like someone with Cushing's. He doesn't have Cushing's. His labs don't even look like someone with Cushing's. And then anyways, long story short, like nine months later, he is having brain surgery for a pituitary tumor oh. that is causing him to secrete excess ACTH, causing him to have cortisol, Cushing's disease. So they remove the tumor and it grows back and now he's on this medicine to try to control it. So when, the reason I'm telling this like extra part of the story, it is tied into hemochromatosis, is that high iron it is really bad for your whole body, but there are particular parts of the body that it is particularly dangerous for and to. And the anterior pituitary gland is one of those parts of the body. And 
A high iron creates a huge amount of inflammation and oxidative stress in the body and especially in the pituitary gland. And inflammation and oxidative stress are a recipe for abnormal DNA damage, abnormal cell growth, and that type of thing. So I don't think that it's a coincidence, although I'll never be able to prove it. I don't think it's a coincidence that my husband's pituitary tumor is happened after having undiagnosed, untreated hemochromatosis for a long period of time, probably. And it's so sad. And there's so many people and patients that now that I really like look at these genes and I really understand them and I'm really quite skilled at kind of how to interpret them and look at everything as far as especially the hemochromatosis stuff, there are so many myths out there and just wrong information that is causing people to not getting diagnosed and treated for something that is so easy to diagnose and treat if you just know what to do. And so that's why I'm writing this book. I had a week or so where I had like just so many hemochromatosis people and I was just like, I'm tired of this. I'm tired of seeing these people with undiagnosed hemochromatosis. I shouldn't be the one that has to find all this. Like these people all have other doctors. They're just not figuring it out. And it's the patient's loss and it's not fair. So I think there's a lot of trends in healthcare and it's really happening at a fast pace now with the internet where the public really kind of leads the diagnostic train. And I think that's gonna have to happen with hemochromatosis. And I hope that my book kind of helps to spur that along. Wow, that's such a story. And and it just shows us that we have to be persistent even with the medical specialists and keeping persistent and showing the evidence. So it'll be interesting to be able to look at your book. Interestingly enough, all the myths that propagate about, I just did a a YouTube video on the myth of iron deficiency or something like that. And I want to hear what you say, what you think are the best ways, the diagnostic tests for hemochromatosis. But what I always get really annoyed at is that most clinicians will test the iron or the ferritin, but not both. And frequently what they'll see is that somebody has, say, a low ferritin, and they go, oh, you have iron deficiency anemia, and they put them on iron. And then if you Mm -hmm. test their iron, their iron's through the roof. And it goes the other way around. So I would love to hear your thoughts on what are the best ways to test people with hemochromatosis. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, because low iron is such a problem, too. And it's kind Mm -hmm. of ironic that I'm writing a book about high iron because I personally struggle with low iron (laughs) and probably the first five years of my career practicing I was really kind of focused on low iron and Mm. then I feel like after that I really discovered oh my gosh I've got this low iron thing down it's this high iron thing that is really not being dealt with properly and I got kind of really a good system for that but Yeah, because it goes both ways. And the reality is that, like you said so eloquently, people are not getting thorough enough labs, period. And it's, quite frankly, completely unacceptable because Mm -hmm. the labs that 
everybody needs every single time that they get blood work. I could go through a list, but if we're just talking about iron, which is definitely on that list, then every single time you get your blood drawn, you need a CBC and then you need a full iron panel. So CBC, we know it's in that full iron panel. It's surprising to me how many times I say that and people are like, well, what's in a full iron panel? Mm -hmm. So what's in a full iron panel is a ferritin, serum iron, iron saturation, TIBC, and UIBC. And then I like to also get a CRP if I can because there's inflammation is just such a iron cause, high iron causes inflammation, but you can also have anemia of inflammation where you have a high ferritin and like low iron. That's actually mm -hmm. pretty common too. And that's something I talk about in the book also. And that can be a little bit more difficult to diagnose and treat sometimes. But if you kind of know what you're looking at, then you know what you're dealing with. What I see a lot also is people, they'll get like a serum iron and maybe that'll be normal, but then they won't get like everything else that's showing, right. oh, you're heading in the right, wrong direct, the wrong direction here. And if we don't do something about this, then like you're going to pay the price. And so, yeah, yeah, the, yeah. Yeah, I'm always on the bandwagon about that when people get their stuff done. And because it's sad how many people are either put on iron or not put on iron or not chatted about. And when their ferritin is, like if their iron is high or low, they're just put on iron without looking at their ferritin to see what the, the story is. I'm so glad that you're putting it together in a book because I've done lots of research on this and it's really hard to find good science about it. You can find research studies. It's hard to find anywhere that says, what does it mean if somebody has high iron and low ferritin or vice versa? No, you yeah. just go, oh, they have low iron and low ferritin. They have iron deficiency anemia. Or they say they have low iron or low ferritin. They have iron deficiency anemia. Just put them on iron. So I'm glad you're mm -hmm. addressing this important problem. We are running out of time. We're going to have to close now. I could go on and talk to you for hours and hours about this stuff because I'm <laughs> fascinated with it. But we're going to put links to your, you have a LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, web page. So go out and look at, look for Christy Sutton. Dr. Sutton Chiropractic and Nutrition is a website. There's LinkedIn and just, I'm not going to read all those names, but Dr. Christy Sutton, look her up on both of these places, but we'll have all the links to this in the show notes. So you don't have to look too far. Thank I look you forward. So much. Oh yeah. And I look I forward to talking again. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for all of the great educational information you're putting out there and everything. So thank you. Thank you. It's my pleasure. We're all on a mission, right? We're all on a mission mm -hmm. to make real valuable healthcare, root cause healthcare available to patients, available to the public, because people are just not getting the right advice and hearing your husband's story. It's stories I hear every day that just get me so irate that there's not better health care out there. That's, people are not actually getting health care. They're getting disease management. So let's wait until this guy falls apart and it's obvious, oh, he has a tumor. Now let's do something about it. That's not the way health care should be practiced. And you and I know that and everybody that's listening knows that. I was just going to say, I don't think there's a lot of things beyond the genes that we're looking at that really allow you to get a head start on your health more so than 
the genes we were talking about and like the genetic detox. I don't think there's another way to really get a head start on your health and truly be proactive and preventative. And it's like, I don't understand why medical doctors or doctors ask about family history and then don't care to look at these genes that are so easy to look at that are really driving medical history. In this day and age, it's it's so easy to get this genetic information. Why are we not getting it? And why don't people know what they mean? Maybe it's okay for the lay people not to, but the doctors have got to get on board and get this thing going. Absolutely. And every single one of our health practitioner three-day trainings that we've done over the last few years has brought in lab testing, genetic testing, and really asking the right questions and getting people on board and really helping people to know what to do with that. And people are fascinated with it. If I say something mm-hmm. about genetic testing to people, oh, I want to know, can you do, can you read my genes? Can you tell me what's in there? They're fascinated by it. And yeah, you can get a lot of this from family history if you actually pay attention to the family history, right? I personally, before the Gene Project came out, I looked at my family and I said, there's no old people in my family. And people usually die of heart disease or they get diabetes before they get old. And I thought, I must have really bad genes. I'm going to do all the right things to take care of myself. So if I were to go through your book and look at all the things you recommend, if you have this gene, here's some of the lifestyle things. I just decided to do all that. When I finally did get my genes done, and I think it was 2014, and I got it through 23andMe before they slapped, pulled out so many of the the good stuff Mm -hmm. in there. But I looked at my genes and I said, I have no idea why I'm such a well-functioning person, right? And it is because I took charge of the epigenetic factors. So we have to keep that in mind. And a lot of people aren't willing to do what I was willing to do back in whatever it was. It was in the 80s or early 90s. A lot of people aren't willing to do that. So the genes help us to verify, well, okay, you do have this risk. Then the lab tests help us verify, is that actually manifesting? And then when they see this, they go, look, you have a choice, chocolate chip cookies every day or Alzheimer's, which, which do you want, mm-hmm. right? Exactly. And they go, oh, or CYP1A2 is another one of my motivating genes, by the way. And I'll say, well, you're eating, drinking all this caffeine. You have a family history of breast cancer. Do you really want to keep diverting your body away from detoxifying estrogen so it can detoxify mm-hmm. your caffeine? And they go, oh. Now that you mention it, so we have so much power as practitioners to help people to make the right choices. And I want us all to have this information, which is why I'm putting on all these podcasts, which is why I invited Christy to be here. We're going to invite you back. We'll have another conversation. Yeah, definitely. Because we we have to get this information out there and we have to to provide the science so that it's more credible in the eyes of medicine. So Thank you so yes. much, so Thank much you. for being here. Thank you so You're much for so everything welcome. that you do. And then just a message to all of you, go to the show notes page. You'll get all of Dr. Christie's information there. I have a thing called reinventhealthcare.com forward slash genes, which is a guidebook to help you. I put together some of my charts and things to help you to get started, but highly recommend geneticdetoxification.com. Run the 23andMe through that. And I know there's a whole negative connotation to 23andMe. But at this point, I'm still using it because I love to be able to use genetic detoxification. And there's not a lot of better options out there yet. Yeah, it's happening. I know. And I have a lot of patients that just will use a fake name with 23andMe if they're worried about personal information. So that's just I do the same thing. 
All the time. I tell them Mickey Mouse, Donald Duck, whatever you want to put in there, you can put that in there. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you again, Dr. Christy Sutton. And you're so welcome. Everybody else, download the charts. And until next time, shine on. Thank you for listening to the Reinvent Healthcare podcast. Join the movement of practitioners that are guiding people to actually get well rather than covering up their symptoms. Connect with us at reinventhealthcare.com to access resources and tools that will empower you to create a thriving health practice.